Hi there, I'm Jay Goldstein, head of program at Petrie. I'm your host, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us yet, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating and improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on sustainable agriculture. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk to Bill Brady, founder of Kula Bio. Kula Bio is a leader in sustainable nitrogen solutions, helping farmers improve crop yield and reduce environmental impact. They make a cost-competitive biofertilizer that boosts a naturally occurring process to deposit meaningful amounts of nitrogen in the soil. In this episode, we're gonna to talk to Bill about his start as a founder. We'll take a deep dive into the science, we'll explore its impact on the field and our sustainable future. And finally, we'll get three concrete tips from Bill to help founders, perhaps like you, building at the intersection of biology and engineering. Bill, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here. Awesome, let's start at the beginning. So Bill, you've had a pretty unusual pathway. I mean, you started really in industry and spent a great deal of time there. So you didn't have this moment probably super early on where you thought to yourself, geez, when I grow up, I wanna be a founder. Or maybe you did, did you? No, but I did. Uh, You're right. I I worked for 22 years for a public materials company called Cabot Corporation. And my last number of years there, I ran, it was a $2 billion business that I ran all over the world, 23 plants in 17 countries. It was a lot of fun. I, I worked for incredible mentors there and learned a lot. One of the things I learned there that we were a public company. So we tried everything to improve earnings, you know, you name it, every fad, outsourcing, insourcing, offshoring, onshoring. And in all my years, in all my 22 years there, when I look back, the only thing that ever really moved the needle was technology. Moving the needle on performance, move the needle on financial performance, it was technology. And so um, that was inspiring to me. And then I, w- I was staring at 50. I was kind of 48 years old and thought, gosh, you know, I, I, I really started to think about impact. Um, and so I made the change. And the past 10 or 11 years, I've been focused on building companies, technology companies that could have a really positive effect on climate change and sustainability. So I, I built up a biofuels company I then co-founded a hydrogen energy company called Monolith Materials, and then started Kula Bio along with uh, Dan Nocera from Harvard. And so, um, yeah, my path is a little bit different, but um, but I got here. I like to think in a really thoughtful, meaningful way, and I, I'm really super happy I'm I'm doing this. Being a founder is so much riskier than being part of a large corporation, and I'm just wondering what you were feeling uh, and what was going on in your mind when you made that leap to go rogue. Yeah, riskier for sure, way more fun and exciting for sure. And so I worked in the company for 22 years. I ran every business in the company. I had every, you know, every meaningful job I could have in the company. You know, it was time for a change. You know, I, I suppose maybe if I had spent 22 years in trying to build up small startup companies, maybe I would have appreciated going to a big company, but I I did it the opposite way. Let's 
invite Josh Moser into the conversation. I would love for us to spend some time talking about the breakthrough science of Kula Bio, and Josh is going to lead us there. Josh, welcome. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, maybe before we get into the technology that underpins Kula, I was hoping you could help us frame the problem here by walking us through some of the issues associated with conventional fertilizers. So perhaps you can just touch on the Haber-Bosch process, some of the emissions that are associated with that process, and then as well as the sustainability issues that arise farther downstream from the over-application of fertilizers. Yeah, so uh, maybe, maybe we'll start at the beginning. So nitrogen, which is the fertilizer we're talking about. Nitrogen is essential for growth. Plants need it, you and I need it to grow. Because of course, nitrogen is found in amino acids, which make up proteins. Nature produces enough nitrogen to support about 3 billion people. And when I say that, it's enough nitrogen to grow the plants that we eat to live, or to grow the plants that animals eat and then we eat the animals. So nature grows enough for, to support 3 billion people. Unfortunately, we have 7 billion people. And so the reason is 100 years ago, two German scientists, Haber and Bosch, invented this way to make synthetic nitrogen. And this allowed the human race to grow from 3 billion to 7 billion today. And it was an amazing invention. They won the Nobel Prize for it twice. And so that was great. The problem is it's completely unsustainable. So for every pound of nitrogen you make with this Haber-Bosch process, you make about four pounds of CO2. The second problem is when you put this nitrogen, and this is granular nitrogen that we all are familiar with, when you put it on the soil and it rains, about 50% of the nitrogen runs off, ends up in our waterways and is deadly to marine life or contaminates the drinking water. So it's got two really big environmental issues. And if you, uh, just to sort of put it in context, nitrogen fertilizer if you take all the impacts of nitrogen fertilizer, probably accounts for somewhere between three and 5% of our greenhouse gases every year. So it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we understand the backdrop with nitrogen fertilizers. And while they've been incredibly important from a historical context, which you, which you just discussed, they aren't sustainable. So maybe you can just give us the pitch for Kula. What are you guys doing from a technological approach that helped solve some of these problems? Yeah, so the technology came out of Harvard University, first of all, uh, out of Dr. Dan Nocera's lab. What it is, is a biologically based nitrogen fertilizer. So these are microbes, bacteria, that fix nitrogen from the air. The air is 80% nitrogen and delivers it to the soil. That's basically what we're doing. Now, microbes in agricultural applications is not a new idea. The problem is every other microbe, when it gets into the soil, it has to compete for energy. And so it either has to compete for food and energy with these uh, native microbes, or it has to borrow energy from the plant itself. Neither are terrible, but it limits the life of the microbe to a matter of hours, maybe up to a day. So what we've done is we have energized these microbes in our bi proprietary bioreactors 
before they go into the soil, such that when they get into the soil, they live for weeks, currently two, two and a half weeks, rather than hours. Now, if they're living for two weeks, all of a sudden the quantity of nitrogen becomes pretty significant. And if you divide the cost by the quantity of nitrogen, the cost to do it becomes pretty competitive. So that's, the, that's really what we're doing. And because we can get the microbe to live so long and have that quantity, and because we're plant agnostic, we're delivering the nitrogen to the soil, we can have really broad application. And, and our aim is to knock out all of the Haber-Bosch produced nitrogen. And so the, the key innovation here is on this energy source that's given to the microbes that actually allows them to fix nitrogen for far longer than they naturally would do so. So can you just give us a little bit more detail on where this energy source is, is coming from, um, how you guys are actually applying the energy source into the microbes and how the microbes are actually drawing on this through the time as they're applied in the field? Yeah. So in our bioreactor, think of a typical bioreactor, think of a vat. In goes water, the microbe, and a nutritional salt mix. And in the first part of our uh, process, we drive up the microbial density. So we get them to multiply like crazy until we get the microbes as dense as we can. And we get them to a density, the product looks kind of like orange juice. It's a very thick orange yellow liquid. And then at some point we cut the nutritional input to the microbes. And now the microbes are under stress. And it's at this point that we feed the microbes hydrogen and CO2, CO2 from the air. And the microbes now aggressively consume carbon from CO2 and hydrogen, and they metabolize something called polyhydroxylbutyrate. And this is the energy storing material. So think a little bit about a bear prior to hibernation. We kind of fatten these microbes up and that's how they store the energy. So once we do that and we get to the desired level of energy storing material, it comes out of our reactor and gets applied to the soil. And then once on the soil, the microbes draw on that energy store to express a nitrogenase enzyme. And this nitrogenase enzyme is what fixes nitrogen from the air and delivers it to the soil. Does it for two weeks. And then when the energy source is depleted, the microbe simply dies and is a source of carbon in the soil. I, I love the, the bear uh, analogy. I hadn't heard that one before. Maybe we can just flesh out a little bit how these technologies get validated. So, I think you know, with many things in ag, I think a common failure mode is to demonstrate efficacy in a highly controlled laboratory environment, and then fail to demonstrate similar levels of efficacy in field trials, just given how many more variables there are in the real world. How did you guys navigate this at Kula? And maybe you could also just touch on some of the the more surprising things that you learned during this transition from the lab to the field? Yeah, well, one thing, we took a strategy early on in the company to build the car as we were driving it down the road. And what, what I mean by that is we got the customers involved very, very early. So we started the company, just to give you a sense, we started the company in the fall of 2018 and we were on a farm in March of 2019. And believe me, it was an imperfect situation, but we did it to get, to get the feedback. And as you point out, 
particularly in ag, there's a long cycle of, uh, for the growers. And so we wanted to get moving and we wanted to make sure we were innovating based on what the farmers told us, not based on what we thought. So we have a mantra in the company, which is inside the company, we have a lot of opinions, but all the facts reside with the customer. So we, we stayed true to that. So we did that. And at the same time, we went out and we contacted 700 farmers. We had meaningful discussions with about 100 of them. Bill, how did you find 700 farmers? Well, we, um, it was a lot of sort of um, gritty work. I mean, there's databases, there are farmers associations regionally, um, there are academic institutions who the farmers rely on, we use them, and we cobbled it together. The summer we did it, I had two interns. I had two interns from Brown University. And I'm pretty sure those two interns got, I'm pretty sure I gave them more of an education than their parents are getting from their Brown tuition. I mean, they learned a lot trying to get the farmers, then get the farmers to talk to us. So it was just sort of, you know, a scrappy way to do it. It was, you know, not high sophistication, it was scrappy. And then we went out and talked to them. The ones who wanted to talk to us, we talked to. It was really interesting because we came away with four really clear messages. And they were this from the farmers. Number one, I'm not gonna pay you any more money. Number two, I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. Number three, I'm not gonna buy any capital equipment. And number four, if you want me to use your product, you gotta show me it works. And please don't bring me data from some fancy Harvard farm or something, show me from my neighbor's farm. And so, you know, at first we were like, whoa, like that, that's a little rough. But then we came back and we designed around that criteria and it was super helpful. I, it, and I think it cut years off of our development time. If we're, you know, if we're successful, it'll cut years off of our development time. So, you know, that was really, you know, that, 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 that was really, really helpful. Okay. So before we move on to sharing some advice for founders, I just want to quickly touch on impact. And, and you mentioned this earlier on, Bill, but what are the ways that you think about impact at Kula? So we have two, we have two ways of quantifying our impact. The first and the biggest is for every ton of Haber-Bosch that we can replace, we knock out four tons of CO2. So there's a huge carbon avoidance story in the company. The second thing, if you remember back to how I described the process, we grow up the microbes, we feed them hydrogen and CO2 from the air. Because we're feeding them CO2 from the air, and then the microbe goes underground with the CO2, we actually sequester a certain amount of CO2 for every pound of nitrogen. So we've got a secondary uh, impact of carbon sequestration, which is really exciting. Now that gets to be a lot harder to quantify. Uh, you guys know about this, how deep is the carbon? How long does it stay there? But it's there for us. So those, those are our two ways of quantifying, but the farmers are super interested. Number one, they are super interested in preserving their soil. 
And number two, they are very interested in being part of the climate change solution. So we've had a very receptive audience from the farmers. That leads us to our next set of questions, which is about customer discovery. Figuring out how do you talk to your customer? How do you figure out who they are and how to get get to them and, and listen to them? I think one of the things that many small companies do not do well and do not do early enough is to really understand and segment their markets. When I was uh, at Cabot Corporation, I used to teach an industrial marketing class with Professor Ray Corey at Harvard. And he used to have this saying, which was all else follows. And what he meant was, once you pick your market where you're gonna compete, everything else just follows. And so I've often thought about that in the small companies because think about the situation. You've gotta really understand the intricacies of a market and then select well. And you've gotta select where you as a small company can win. Because think about it, most of us are trying to break decades old, in some cases, centuries old, infrastructure and technologies. We had, by the way, i give you an example of this at, at Kula. You know, as I mentioned, we talked to, to a lot of farmers and we found all the farmers wanted to take care of their land, wanted to take care of the environment. But we found there was a certain sub-segmentation of organic and regenerative farmers and those transitioning to organic and regenerative who not only wanted to do what everyone else wanted, but they were paying 10 to 20 times the price for their nitrogen. Because they use natural sources, they had to put the nitrogen source on the soil six to nine months before they needed it so that it decomposed, which is tough. And the third thing is because they were using compost and manure and those type of sources, they had the problem of pathogens and product recalls. I mean, we've all experienced lettuce uh, recalls and all that. That's from the nitrogen fertilizer. And so we sub-segmented down and this group is willing to pay a lot, a lot more and had really big problems that we solved. So we got going with them first uh, as our market entry. We're gonna build quite a nice business with them, I think. And then we just expand from there. But it's just an example of how you've got to figure out how to latch your technology to a really big, really big problem. I'm curious culturally, what lessons you have for talking to the farmer population? I think for us, it was all about humility and it was all about asking questions and, and listening intently. I'm half Italian and uh, my Italian grandmother used to always tell me that um, you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. And that came in especially handy when we were out on the farm. And, and the farmers really appreciated that. We, we, we were just asking them about their problems and then they would just, I mean, they just educated us. So. I think we were really humble uh, for obvious reasons. We didn't know that much. And, um, and we found some really good people who were willing to talk to people who were listening. I can tell you, we also heard war stories 
of the first wave of biological solutions that came through some years back, where there were some super smart people who went out and were trying to tell the farmers what they needed to do, and that didn't go so well. So uh, I think maybe it's a lot of the lessons you learned in kindergarten that you can apply, <laughs> that you can apply, you know. Let's talk next about hiring. I know you've thought really deeply about this, about having a mixture of new talent and young talent. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on who do you bring onto your team and, and why? Well, I think, I think the first thing I would say to founders, and it's not about you. It's about the people you surround yourself with. You've got to think about surrounding yourself with diversity of thought, diversity of experiences, diversity of training and people who, who just come at it from, from different angles. And in that is gender diversity, eth ethnic diversity and all that. So I, I, think, I think surrounding yourself with great people and people who do not think like you is kind of the first rule of, of, um, of hiring. By the way, uh, Jay, I don't know if I ever told you this, but at Kula Bio, we are uh, over 50% women in the company. Love it. And our, and our scientific advisory board is over 50% women. It's a fantastic dynamic in the company. I love that. Let's talk about, speaking of that, the culture. You bring all this diversity together. You bring all this talent together. But if you can't figure out how to optimize, there's really no value in bringing all those people together, right? Yeah. Well, we worked quite hard on our corporate values. Uh, but there are three things in our values I, I wanted to bring up and, and talk about. The first and pr probably the most important thing is that the leader has to create an organization that, that learns. And the best way to do that is to fill the company with people who have a growth mindset. And when I say that, what I mean is, look, we all have super strong opinions. We should because of what we do. But the growth mindset comes into every situation and says, what am I gonna learn from this debate discussion that's gonna make my opinion better? They do not go in and, and defend their position. And so it's a unusual kind of um, back and forth between this is what I believe, but having that growth mindset to to expand your own brain. So more than anything, the growth mindset is super, super important. But how do you screen for that, Bill? Um, well, I would say uh, it's hard, um, but I would say a couple of things. One is you can ask questions and have discussions in an interview that are not normal, that will tell you whether a person engages to get smarter or engages to defend. And also, you know, the references are key here too. And you can ask those same questions, questions of references to, to see whether the person's past is fixed or, or is growth. But it's a judgment call. At the end of the day, it's a judgment call. So scenario-based interview questions are very helpful. Yeah, and I, I always find challenging the person in the interview and seeing how they what respond. What do you mean, Bill? Just kidding. <laughs> no, and seeing how they respond to the challenge, you can learn, you can learn a lot. So, so the growth mindset is one really important thing. 
A second really important thing, and this is related to the hiring discussion we had, is what I call intellectual collisions. And what I mean by that is that if we're all running these disruptive technology companies, and I think what's really important is that you fill half the room with people who know how to get it done, who know how it's been done in the past, and who can draw on those experiences to tell you how realistic something is or is not. That's half the room. The other half of the room is people, usually younger, who are innovated and don't give a damn how it's been done in the past. And if you can set the room up like that, then the CEO's job is to set up these debates and intellectual collisions on every hard problem facing the company. And if you get it going right, and if you have people with a growth mindset, you, can, you get to much, much, much better answers. And the CEO's job, by the way, um, rather than being the lead debater on the debate team, is the lead coach and mentor to the intellectual collisions. And if you can get it going, it, it's really magical and you get much, much better answers. So intellectual collisions are really the second key thing. And then the third one, which is related to intellectual collisions is generosity of spirit. What I mean by that is you gotta, if you're gonna have that type of culture of debate, you've gotta go in and come out of those things, giving your coworkers the benefit of the doubt. So you yourself have to go in with a spirit that says, I'm gonna first assume that they do not mean any harm. They're just trying to do good, do good for the company, as am I. And you kind of go for there. The other thing with the generosity of spirit is you got to remember as tough and intense as those, those debates become, you have to have the highest level of respect for each other. And a really great leader understands early in the company that they have to take a half a step back and manage all that interaction as opposed to being the one that has all the answers. Bill, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing about Kula Bio and all of your experiences with our listeners today. It has been a pleasure having you. It's great to be here. It was a lot of fun. If you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected.